0: Hello and welcome to the Emerging Mechanisms of Action in the Treatment of Moderate to Severe Alopecia Areata in Children podcast series. This is episode one of three. Today, you'll hear an interview with Dr. Carolyn Goh. She offers a unique perspective on the topic of treat or not to treat as she's a dermatologist specializing in alopecia areata who has opted out of treatment for her own alopecia. Dr. Goh practices medical dermatology, with research and clinical interests in all types of hair loss, including alopecia areata and scarring alopecia. She has been active with patient advocacy groups and local support groups for patients with hair loss. Interviewing Dr. Go is Dr. Leslie Costello socio She's a pediatric dermatologist whose clinical and academic focus is on alopecia, hair conditions, and genodermatosis with specialty clinics in both hair and genodermatosis. Dr. Leslie Costello-Socio, why don't you say hello? Hello. And Dr. Carolyn Go. Hello. Thank you both so much for joining us this evening. Uh, Dr. i I'd like to go ahead and turn it over to you.
1: Great. Um, so this is the uh, first podcast of um, the alopecia areata series. Um, and what I love about this is that it complements our webinars. And enables us to get like kind of a different perspective on alopecia areata from experts like Dr. Go, from patients um, living with alopecia areata, and then have a format to be uh, to ask questions and to be more informal. So I'm really thrilled to have Dr. Carolyn Go to uh, talk to during this um, podcast, which I'll admit I had to learn the difference between a webinar and a podcast, as some of you will remember, um, and uh, despite the fact that I listen to tons of podcasts, um, and uh, I just want to say that we're really happy that, um, that you're here.) Um, I think I wanted to start with kind of talking to you a little bit about, um, you know, you have an alopecia clinic, you take care of tons of patients with um, hair loss, um, and you've really, you know, spoken a lot about the different types of stigma that patients living with alopecia kind of um, experience. And so, you know, my first my first question was like, how do you counsel patients about this What are your thoughts about um, stigma related to alopecia? I know that's a big question.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, Yeah, with stigma, it's it's an interesting way to think about uh, alopecia of any kind, um, hair loss of any kind. And it kind of dawned on me um, where the stigmas of hair loss are so profound and so um, in, in, ingrained in all of us uh, in our, in, and in our culture that this is why I have such a thriving and busy alopecia clinic. Um, people who don't have very much hair loss, but have some, they have such a fear of losing all their hair because of that stigma. And I think um That's And parents whose children are losing their hair, they just have this huge fear of what their child is going to have to deal with um, because of those stigmas that we all have. Um, Just growing up, you know, if you look around, everybody you see usually has hair and that's what's expected. Um, So the thought is that if you don't, there's something wrong. And uh so I think that's a big thing in terms of how I approach that or how it helps me um, you know, how I try to reduce that for my patients. I, I think in general in dermatology, anything pretty much we try to help n- not necessarily normalize a skin condition, but accept it for patients and show that this is not, they're not alone in dealing with it, that this um, can happen and that it, they can deal with it. And for me, I've actually found that um, since I don't have hair and I walk in and they can see that very readily, I think that goes a long way in helping reduce the stigmas already for them, knowing that you know somebody out there can accept it. Um, and so it, I think that helps a lot Um, in general, Um, but it's a work in progress and not everyone can accept it right away um, or deal with it, which is, you know, can be tough.
1: Do you feel like you um, get asked um, a lot about your alopecia from your patients? (laughs) And is it something that know because obviously you're an expert and you know most people wouldn't get asked personal questions but again because it's so visible you know patients might feel like you know more open to asking you um how do you kind of how do you deal with that
2: i'm very open about it um i i think it is helpful for people to hear um somebody else's experience and just learn, you know, and that's how we all that's the big step to reducing stigma in the first place is to um, be able to um, uh, educate people. And so um, I get asked, I get asked about it maybe not as often as you might think, but uh, with some, you know, with relative frequency Um, and I just am straightforward about it depends on the situation, how much in detail I go, but I usually just say, you know, I lost my hair when I was three and I did have hair before that Um, I don't remember much about it <laughs> so um, in some ways that I'm blessed about that and uh, um, and I did try some treatments sometimes they want to know about that uh-huh. um, would I do any treatments now maybe not right now just because of where my life is but um, maybe maybe not you know but uh, I wouldn't say absolutely not at this point um, and I sometimes will tell them that I did wear wigs when I was younger and that that was helpful. Um, but it it kind of depends, but I, yeah, I I think it's helpful to the patients to be open.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, um, I know you've expressed that, you know, right now you're not doing treatments and um, do you feel like that changed over time as you like, you know, just grew in confidence with your professional, you know, development and just being older that, that, that that changed for you? Uh,
2: so there was a very specific time (laughs) that I chose to stop treatments. And so, like I said before, I lost my hair when I was three. Um, my dad was a pediatrician and so we got hooked in. I actually went to see Dr. Wilma Bergfeld and at Cleveland Clinic for several years. Um, and, uh, we did like, Uh, topical minoxidil we did um uh we did topical steroids i think my dad said told me he even put me on a prednisone taper for five days once and um you know all these things and really nothing ever worked um and then uh around uh when i was 12 or 13 maybe 13 or 14 maybe something like that um, uh, Rogaine came out. So topical monoxyl 2%. And um, my dermatolo- our, our dermatologist at the time, he would just give us a call if something new came out, you know, and said, hey, you, know, you want to get this a try. And so uh, this was our local dermatologist now. And um, the, so we we're sure, like, sure, okay. And we had to get it for, as a prescription at the time. And, um, I started it, I did it for four months or so, and I actually got some growth of hair. Um, that was probably the most successful treatment I ever had. Um, and I saw some pictures recently. It was very significant, actually growth, um, enough coverage, almost my whole scalp, um, short, you know, and still some patches, but, um, there was some growth, but after four months, I was just so tired of doing it and I didn't want to do it. I was a busy teenager. You know, I had a lot of activities. I was busy with school and I just didn't want to do it anymore. And I decided I didn't want to do anything anymore. And I told my parents and my parents said, um, well, don't you want hair? Don't you want to be beautiful? Don't you want to have a boyfriend? <laughs> and I was like, you know, I don't need those things. You know, I don't need hair to do those things. And, um, but, you know, the normal things. They said, that's what they said and, and thought. And, um, but I said, no, I don't want to do anything anymore. And I kept wearing my wig um, and just kept doing things. But uh, the one thing I did try after all of that was uh, acyclovir pills, um, because of a case report um, that, you know, wears acyclovir, and some people grew their hair back and um, didn't get really anything. But that was a simple, you know, that was not too um, difficult to get into my life. But um, since then, I haven't done anything. And then uh, when I went off to college, I decided not to wear a wig anymore, either
1: yeah yeah we see i mean we see a lot of differences between the opinion of um parents and kids in terms of treatment
2: yes. um you
1: know a lot of times like parents come in and they want to do everything, and a lot of times there's you know kids say, you know I feel okay or i don't want to do I don't want to do injections, I don't want to do mm-hmm. topicals um right. and it sounds like maybe some of that you know you experience, and you probably see it with you know you know, patients too, where, you know, family members have like, you know, ideas of like all these remedies to try. And, you know, and Mm -hmm. the person says, you know, I don't want to do any of those. And um, I feel like we're, we always like are struggling with that, especially for younger children, you know, because they haven't really um, developed fully enough to like voice that opinion, but you can kind of see it. And we try to, you know, tell parents Mm -hmm. that we're treating, you know, the child and not them. Um, Right. Yeah.
2: um. Yeah. It's a lot of times I have to, I I do see that too. Um, I think that, well, so for me, a couple of things. Um, When I was young, you know, and I wore, my parents took me to get a wig about, you know, when I was five. And, you know, but before that I didn't. I would wear hats sometimes and, but they always were pretty normal about it at home. So when I got home, my, the first thing they would say, oh, take off your wig or they would take it off for me and they would, you know, they would touch my head. They would kiss my head. Yeah. It it was very um, accepting at home. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I think that makes a big difference um, for people. Um, And I think that made a big difference for me in accepting it. Um, I don't know. You know, clearly there's definitely personality differences anyways, but I think if, you know, you contrast that with um, some patients, I have some adult patients who their husbands don't even see them without their wig, you know, they just don't do it there and and that's how their home always was too you know they never saw their mother not made up you know and so i think there's definitely definitely differences in how people's homes are but i think that showing your child that it's they are showing more than saying even is um very powerful
1: yeah you know, you've spoken a lot about um, jack inhibitors and, you know, how you've incorporated them into your practice. Mm-hmm. And so I think for, you know, for our audience, it'd be really helpful to kind of understand when you um, when you use them, you know, what are who are the patients that um, you introduce them to? And then how do you talk about kind of the unknowns? Like we don't know long term. We don't know like so much, you know, about them.
2: Yeah. Um, So I usually, um, well, so the patients that I would get target for it um, are a couple types. So some people come in and they know that's what they want. They've heard about it. Their friend has been on it or, you know, something like that. And it runs the gamut in terms of people who have had alopecia for many, many years and haven't been treating, but want something now or um, to people who it's just, started happening to um, and people and then so people that i have to introduce it to um some of them are people who just are so devastated by the rapidity of their hair loss uh, by how quickly it's come on and um, really not they're not necessarily desperate but just really really need something treat and and I've been reaching for it a little more quickly lately just because when you look at people like that there's only so far that our traditional treatments can take us and a lot of them just are not effective Um, and maybe we'll start with something like prednisone and or methotrexate or you know or things like that but um after you know a few months a lot of times it becomes clear that they'll need something else And, um, I'm fortunate enough that at our location, it's a multi-specialty group and we have a rheumatologist on site, um, who has samples of Zaljans And so, um, or tofacitinib and we can, um, they have allowed me to dispense if I need to. So sometimes I can give some patients, um, some to get started and we do get some patients covered on insurance, um. Others that we can't get covered on insurance, some of them, fortunately, we can keep on the samples, um, but others, we start to run out. So it's, but most, for the most part of the patients, um, they kind of become, it, it becomes obvious. And then in terms of how I counsel them, also, that will be, become a definitive uh, defining line too. some people you start to say, well, it suppresses your immune system. It's a newer drug. We don't have as much data about its safety, especially long-term. Um, and some of those people don't want to touch it at all. So people kind of um, fall off on their own based on their preferences. Um, I had another one, I've seen a couple of patients gain weight on it, and so I had another patient where the weight gain was a huge deterrent for her. Um, And so we, you know, so there's, but essentially I just am very open about it, that it's a drug that seems to work really, really well for alopecia, um, and that there are others in the clinical trials that look like they're gonna work very well. Um, but it's not FDA approved for alopecia and, um, we need to, they just need to be aware of potential long-term risk.
1: Yeah. What do you, what do you think as like dermatologists, we need to do to convince, you know, insurance to, and this is something I think about all the time, you know, to, you know, to approve it for patients who really need it because of the, um, medical and psychological burden, yeah. Um, you know, I do a lot of peer to peers and talk to people directly as my yeah. method. Um, uh-huh. But I, you know, I wish there was something that yeah. we could document that was different.
2: I know. I think our um, my approach has that has worked for several people, not for everybody, but is to um, have the patients write their own letter, and I'll write a letter they'll write a letter and um, I've had, I have this beautiful letter from uh, at the time she was 18 and she had had extensive alopecia for many years already um, and uh, had been living with it. No treatments, just wearing a wig. But when she heard about this, she was interested and, um, and she wrote this beautiful letter. It was, it's just full. It's like the most um, very honest, very, um, real, very humble in a way too. It's not like, Oh, I, you know, feel terrible about this. She just said, you know, I know this is not life threatening and I know that I can live with it, but I don't want to, you know, there's hope for me now with this medication and that gave Mm -hmm. me a huge, you know, that was a huge thing for her. And, um, she doesn't want to look in the mirror and say oh is that a man looking at me or be mistaken for a man by somebody else and um she doesn't want to feel self-conscious and lo and behold it got approved (laughs) I was was floored you know I I loved the letter I thought it was beautiful but I was like is somebody really going to read this and be moved to Mm -hmm. approve it and they did yeah. So, you know, fortunately, she is a good writer. And sometimes you have good writers. And so not all patients are so, you know, good at it. But um, I think that is, you know, when I read it, I was convinced, you know, yeah. and I think um, that's the kind of thing that um, some like stories like that, I think, can be really helpful. Yeah,
1: um, I, I do. Yeah, yeah, I think that you know, in general, hair specialists will go to bat for their patients and, Mm
0: -hmm. you know,
1: make the extra calls and, you know, and bring the, um, you know, the individual back to that insurance Mm -hmm. Um, and it it makes a huge, yeah, it makes a huge difference for approvals. And then, you know, also just for the patient's happiness, you know, Mm -hmm. too, not for everyone, but for some, yeah. Um, What cosmetic strategies do you recommend? for,
0: um,
2: patients, if any, um. Mm -hmm. Um, I, well, so hair pieces, wigs, um, there's, you know, for partial loss, um, there's, for partial, partial loss of alopecia areata is tough. I mean, things, camouflage, like, uh, topic and, um, you know, or various camouflage, fibers, um, can be helpful, um, even in severe, you know, with patches, but it's a little harder to cover than diffuse hair loss. Um, but there are so many options these days for mm-hmm. wigs and hair pieces and, um, these systems that people use to where they, you know, they sew in and make custom pieces for people with patches or without, um, so it runs the gamut from very inexpensive things that you can buy off the shelf or, uh, or online to c- totally custom and, you know, the pricing goes along with that. So I, I usually talk to patients, I give them the resources, um, the national alopecia areata foundation has a whole marketplace with, um, wigs and hats and scarves, um, that can be helpful, Um, and, uh, the, and then I have a list of vendors that I've, you know, heard are good things about, um, or from patients. Uh, so we, we just say, and I introduce it, um, I usually don't necessarily introduce it early, um, but it depends if the patient brings it up, then I'll talk about it. Um, at that point, or uh, if it seems like we're getting to a point where treatments may really not be working, then we'll discuss it. And I'll write them prescriptions here in California. Um, the, most insurance companies don't cover any, but um, a prescription will get them a tax-free uh, hairpiece.
1: So. Yeah. I mean, I, in kids, I think, you know, we can often get coverage, Um, once you get to adulthood, there's like a lot of disparities in what, like, what you can afford and what's available. And so that, Mm -hmm. that can be, I think, challenging and hard for, Mm -hmm. you know, for the, the clinician or dermatologist to see, because like, we can't provide it, obviously. Yeah.
2: yeah. Um, I I think with kids, um, it's important to, um, like if they do want to wear a wig, you, want to make sure you go to a vendor that is familiar with kids um when I was a child and I started when I my first wig we got from Macy's <laughs> I was nearby I ha- happened to have a wig salon and it was um an, you know it was for old women it was an old woman style wig and and it was really itchy it was not comfortable at all and um I think they sized it down for me a little but it was not good, but we found a place, a salon. um, And I grew up in Toledo, Ohio. So it was, you know, not a huge town, but we found a salon there that was run by um, a mother daughter who both had alopecia. And so they were very familiar with all of it. And, um, and they were great. They, you know, found wigs for me, they would size them down. We sat down in there and the the wigs I had were very comfortable um, at that point. So um, I think, not to feel like all wigs are itchy and uncomfortable that there are ways to get ones that are better.
1: Yeah. And not necessarily expensive. No, no. I've seen all sorts of um, homemade uh, varieties (laughs) that look fantastic. Um, (laughs) uh, Like patients ask a lot about like what, what you think the next treatments are going to be. And, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, is it microbiome? Is it, environmental things. Um what, I, what is your perception of you know what's what landscape you know is there gonna be in five years? Do you think it's gonna be the same?
2: Oh um, probably <laughs> I think probably looking at and refining the jack inhibitors trying to get down to something um, more targeted is probably you know hopefully where we're headed um, I don't you know, as far as nutrition, diet, and microbiome, I think they're just too complicated still. I think that we don't unless you know maybe there will be some something that comes out that um you know people kind of figure out how to target you know those things, but i don't I don't foresee it in the at least five years, five years is pretty soon.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah, I've been I've been interested in, uh, you know, the atopic dermatitis kind of cohort of patients um, who have both and, you know, how IL-13 inhibitors or IL-4 inhibitors might be, you know, possible treatments. And I don't Mm -hmm. know if you've had experience with that or um, have patients who do Allegra and other kinds of therapies.
2: Um, I will often put people on Allegra. I personally have taken Allegra on and off throughout the years because I have allergies and, um, I, I don't know that it does anything <laughs> for anybody, but it's p- certainly safe enough. Um, and, uh, the, as far as, um, uh, what was the other, oh, IL-14, IL-4 and IL-13 inhibitors. Um, I, I don't, I have not seen much benefit at all um i think we so we had one patient who was on it because she had a topic she had both and um it's possible she had a little bit of improvement while she was on the um the biologic but um she ended up stopping it for whatever reason and um it's her hair has been kind of we we just continue with um, injections, steroids, and kind of stable. So I'm not sure how effective – I don't really understand how it would be effective. And then I know that, you know, there are case reports of people worsening with it, developing alopecia well on it. So um, I'm not sure that that's the key. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, I think – yeah, eventually I think we're going to, like – have subsets of patients with, you know, different comorbidities and probably treat them differently. Cause I mean, I don't think it's all necessarily the same um, disease, but, um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think we're there yet. And, you know, I know there's a big interest in, microbiome and i agree it's like you know in some ways it's much more complicated to understand (laughs) and we're a lot further behind in terms of you know understanding the connection and whether it it leads to flares
2: (laughs) have you have you um seen or recommended like a fetal uh fecal um transplant to anybody or, or no, had, had I mean, anybody ask you, I'm sure. I'm sure people yeah, I mean, I get,
1: I get asked a lot about it and, mm-hmm. you know, certainly about diet, um, but I, I haven't had any child who um, has had one. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to come up because we have a lot of patients who um, have both alopecia areata and IBD And, you know, certainly those were the case reports where, you know, patients had complications with C. diff and then got the fecal transplant. Um, but I, I think there's like a misunderstanding a little bit about fecal transplant, um, from the community and, um, Often often families don't understand that, you know, different donors might have um, you know, a different sample and that the you know the procedure might not be um durable, right? Because you know, yeah, the right. the microbiome changes so rapidly. Yeah. Um, I'm certainly interested in it and I think that um There's, you know, there's a transition point in childhood when your microbiome goes from very, very diverse to more adult-like, and that's when we first see it, like you know, four, right, you know, right around the time you described when you Mm -hmm. had your first, you know, episode, Um, and so maybe there is something to that. um,
0: Interesting.
1: You know, as a as a flare. Yeah.
0: Um, uh,
1: You know the other the other thing that like I see a lot is. you know uh patients having kind of that feeling that um they they want to do treatments because you know people think that they're like undergoing chemotherapy or um uh, one parent told me that when her kid goes to an amusement park um, like a water park in particular he gets to go down the slide like a zillion times because people <laughs> ask because they assume that he yeah. um has, um, cancer, you know, and so they are allowing him to go. Um, yeah. and, you know, I think she described She said, well, you know, at this point I can't just, dis- you know, tell everyone because it's just too tiring for me to do right. it. So I just let him enjoy his, you know, yeah. yeah. um, <laughs> uh, park experience. Um, but, uh, yeah. And, and so, well, you know, one of our strategies is try to like prepare kids to like, for those encounters, you know, I used to call them like these sneak attacks and like, what would you do in a sneak attack? You know, if someone comes up to you and says like, what's going on. Um, but I don't know if, if you have any other like tips for, um, for families.
2: I think that it's no, not really. I mean, I think it's important to have a game plan, like an idea of what to say. Um, some people, uh, adults mostly, but will carry around like a little card that says, "You know, I have alopecia areata. This is what it is," and maybe refer them to more resources if they're interested. Um, and that kind of helps facilitate a little bit. And I've never gotten around to doing that myself, but um, I think sometimes that can be helpful. Um, I think uh, answering, you know, getting to a place where you can say uh, oh I have alopecia and it's you know something short I've heard people say it's kind of like an allergy to my hair you know and I think that sums it up pretty easily you know kind of for a lay person you know and in a way that you can explain quickly to people to understand Um, and I think also just making sure that you have you have the attitude to carry on with it that you are The best way to feel like if you can feel this way about it and approach people, you know, carrying confidence about it, you know what it is, and you're not bothered by it, um, and then people will get a very positive impression about it too, and they won't, and they won't bully you about it either. If you're, you're like, oh, you know, this is alopecia, this is what it is, I have it, and and I feel fine about it, then nobody has room to bully you either so yeah
1: yeah are there are there things that you um i don't know want to tell us that like i haven't asked about that you think are like gosh why didn't she ask me about you know
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh. um i mean i think a couple of things that i found um helpful i mean well i don't know i think that it's always you know with any situation as a doctor you take your patient where they are and uh everybody may you know some people may be ready to hear about you know that shaving their head might make them feel better um and that that's okay if they want to do that whereas other people they might say come in with very few patches and say oh do i need to get a wig now like you know what should i do and you can say no you know i think you're okay i think you know you can hold back if it makes you feel better to have something on hand then you can but otherwise i don't think you need it right now um and whereas other people might need to be told you know maybe you should go get something um but then other people I love, you know, people who are not as aware necessarily of how or they don't suffer from the same stigma that we, you know, most of us carry that they, you know, go out and they're, they are okay with how they look and that's okay too. Um, but uh, my, yeah, my feeling is just sometimes patients need to be told or can be told that they don't necessarily, it's not going to be as bad as they think it might be. Or others that need to be told that, you know, maybe it will get worse to another point. So um, it really varies, um, the approach sometimes. Yeah,
1: I always think that mm-hmm. um, when I see kids who have that perspective of, um, doesn't it doesn't seem to affect them as much as I would think that it does. And I was like, gosh, could we like, could we understand that and yeah. you know, yeah. figure out how how did they get to that place? Yeah. Is it just like innate personality? Is it like you know, yeah, you know, something that their families were doing that gets them to there so that we could treat and teach other people, you know, <laughs> kind of the same. Yeah. Um, but but sometimes it's just that their view on the world is really different. And so yeah. um, yeah, they don't um they really don't feel differently. Yeah. Um, whereas other patients say like, well, you know, my parents say I'm the same, but people view me differently. Yeah. And so I don't feel this. I don't feel that same so, more. Um,
2: yeah. It's like that self-consciousness or, you know, yeah. yeah. Um,
1: you know, I know that when you were an undergrad, you looked at like disparities and comparative studies and um, race and um, ethnicity Mm-hmm. Um, do you see um, like cultural differences in how people experience, you know, living with alopecia areata?
2: That's a great question. Um, and, you know, in college, I actually, that was my senior paper was to, I did a quality of life study online um, and tried to see, you know, white and non-white um, if there were any differences. And it did seem like, you know, it's a small sample um, and I didn't publish it or anything, but the um, it did seem like the those who are non-white seem to cope better. Like they have other coping strategies I think to deal with being a minority in this country and um, they tended to have a better quality of life related to their alopecia um, compared to those that were not, um, who were, who were uh, white. And um, so that was, you know, I think in one, that's one way. Um, it's also, but on the flip side, you have um, certain cultures where hair is very important to them. And then loss of their hair can be very traumatizing because of that cultural um, component. So uh, it's variable. It really varies. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think we all can understand everyone's cultures perfectly, but try to understand the alopecia and its context, because mm-hmm. I think we get a window into that, you know, in the office visits for sure um, about the, um, the importance placed on hair and, um, and appearance for sure. Um, there are certainly families who wear, it doesn't seem to have a huge impact and then families where it really, um, it matters for marriage and, you know, other yeah, cultural sure. aspects of, you know, of our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, are you doing any trials um, for alopecia and do you encourage patients to
2: uh, enroll in trials? So um, a lot of times when it comes up, so I'm not doing any trials at this time. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that in our in our health system and our division. It, it's been difficult to do any trials, but um, I do refer patients uh, to clinical trials um, uh, often, um, but uh, a lot of times they don't, patients don't necessarily want to they that's the reason they've come to see me is they because they just want the treatment they want a treatment um they don't want to have the chance of be getting a placebo or going through um the trial but uh but there's uh, several that you know we just can't get a medication through insurance we just can't you know get anything done and and then i'll encourage them to join the trial
1: yeah yeah i think um yeah, I think in kids it's harder. There are fewer the fewer trials. Yeah. But, um, yeah, hope we can expand that, and you know, and have families and companies kind of see the importance of you know trials and you know younger patients since yeah. the options are you know more
2: limited. Yeah, it is such a burden in children, you know. Um, um that there's so many children affected by it that i think is the population that needs to be addressed for sure
1: yeah um during the pandemic a lot of kids expressed that they who were newly diagnosed with alopecia areata that they really um liked homeschooling um and you know Mm. the being able to be um off camera for for their lessons um uh, I don't know how, um, how that's changed things for adults too, who, mm-hmm. you know, are in meetings and don't necessarily have to be, you know, on camera.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, Cause some patients have told me that they um, like chose different careers or, um, mm-hmm. you know, kind of different paths because of their alopecia.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, uh, I don't know if you have thoughts on that.
2: I think that uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting um, situation where some of the social pressure is taken off, you know, with the appearance. But at the same time, I mean, non alopecia wise, also hair loss wise. Um, so many people have come in complaining about how they look on Zoom. So
0: <laughs> it, it has gone both,
2: both ways for sure. Um, but yeah, I think I, I think that's true for a lot of things with kids in the pandemic, where some of that pressure of being in person, looking a certain way, being, you know, has all been lifted. And um, there's definitely silver linings, and and it, it helps us understand like our situation better right
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think we're going to wrap up now Um, thank you very much for joining us for um, our first alopecia areata podcast I think we've all really enjoyed um, hearing your perspective on treating patients and then also your personal perspective on having um, alopecia areata
2: thank you so
0: much for having me It's my pleasure a special thank you to Dr. Carolyn Goh and Dr. Leslie Costello-Socio. Thank you to Pfizer for supporting this program with grant funding. This program has been developed and produced by PEDRA staff, Dr. Leslie Costello-Socio, and Dr. Britt Craiglow. For more alopecia Ariata programming, be sure to visit our website www.pedraresearch.org forward slash education or download the PEDRA app available for iOS and Android devices. Two more podcasts in the Alopecia Ariata series will be coming, so make sure you stay tuned. Thanks for listening.